Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 7. Uh, I want to make sure that everyone's clear that this one is Episode 7. I kept saying it last time. I guess it just had it on the brain. But this one is definitely Episode 7. I am your host, Brian. And with me is Big Game Hunter Kelly. How you doing? <laughs> Big Game Hunter. Boy, we've been doing that a, a little bit lately, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. So for, for listeners, if, uh, if you're looking for an escape, uh, take a look at this game. It's uh, the Hunter... Call of the Wild, which is exactly that—a hunting simulation. It's it's absolutely absurd and beautiful at the same. Time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> We're having way too much fun. With it. It's yeah, it's for people who actually uh, you know don't actually go hunting and don't want to go get dirty. So, but it's you know it's kind of the same experience. That's yeah. Cool. I mean, I hunting. It. I've tried it. it. It's not for me. It, you know, as you know, I'm I'm impatient by nature, but. I don't like to wake up early and I don't like to be cold. And that seemed to be the, the theme of, of hunting and I just couldn't get behind it. But uh, yeah, this is like hunting for nerds. <laughs> it's, outstanding. it's so beautiful and just ridiculous at the same time. But uh, yeah, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Call, call of the wild. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good game. So, Hey, it's a new year, man. So um, I know this last year has been, uh, was pretty hectic uh, with everything going on, but uh What's your, what's your kind of your expectations for, uh, you know, 2021, what you got planned? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the show is at a good place, uh, considering we started two months ago and we're, we're getting out there and getting after it. We've got uh, a lot of great guests lined up here in the next couple months. Um, and it seems like doesn't, you know, a week goes by that I don't talk to somebody else who's got an interesting story. So, you know, the, the challenge for me at this point is really just scheduling everyone and, and getting it all lined up and, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what, which guest do you put on first? Because as soon as you get something lined up, somebody else pops up. You're like, man, that would be a good one too. But you know, you just line them up. It's, it's you a, just it's line them up. <laughs> you know, terrible situation to be in. But um, these are the kind of problems you want to have. Yep. But yeah, it's been going good. And I'm, I mean, as you know, we've we've struggled uh, quite a bit with the whole website fiasco, and and finally, oh, yeah. after a couple of weeks, figured out what what we did wrong and. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're building the airplane in flight, and uh, but but at least we got it off the ground, and I think we're in a good place. So we do have that website set up, the lowlevelhelppodcast.com, and that's got links to how to email us if you got questions, uh, how to learn a little bit about us, and uh, link us link you to our Instagram, which we just set up, and link you to our Facebook page. And uh, really, the Instagram is going to be fun because what I'm trying to get uh, every guest that comes on is, you know, hey, send me some pictures from your deployments or training and things like that. And we'll, we'll throw those up there as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, I mean, it's going to be hard to beat, uh, you know, some of your past stuff already. I mean, you've only, you're only in this for like two months, right? And uh, you've already hit uh, some, big, some big milestones already, right? So weren't you just on the Afterburn um, podcast and the fighter pilot podcast. And weren't you, uh, interviewing on those? I think I heard you on those. How, how did that go? How did you enjoy that? Yeah. So, you know, Jello over at the fighter pilot podcast has been super helpful. Um, you know, we, we spoke very early on in this whole situation and, and he was gracious enough to have us on to do a quick promo for the, for the show. And that was a big bump. And then, uh, that just kind of led to some other conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I was just on uh, the air combat sim podcast talking about, uh, you know, for our simulation fans, the, the DCS community, we talked a little bit about, uh, Apaches and just helicopters in general within that construct. 
And then, uh, yeah, I was just on with uh, John Waters over there on uh, his podcast, Afterburn. And uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. Um, got to got to be on the other side of the mic, I guess you could say. Yeah, you drop uh, the knowledge bombs. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to have him on. And uh, I, I completely plan to nerd out on F-16 stuff because I, I grew up around F-16s growing up around the McDill Air Force Base. And they were oh, always yeah. flying overhead. And uh, yeah, I just I like them, even though I think I'm too tall to have ever flown one anyway, like I had a chance. But if I could have, I, I don't think I would have fit. Uh, I remember talking to a guy years ago and he's like, oh, yeah, you're too tall. You, they wouldn't let you in. Yeah. How tall are you? But, what uh, are you like? Six, three, uh, six, five, six, five. Surprised yeah. you fit in a helicopter. My goodness. Yeah. Well, you, would, you know, you wouldn't fit in an F-16. That's for sure. No, probably not. But, you know, funny story, when I took my first flight physical, uh, you know, they, they do all these measurements and stuff. And uh, and the guy measured me, my sitting height. And he's like, well, you're, you're disqualified. I said, well, why? He says, well, the, the requirement is 100, you know, no more than 101 sitting height uh, centimeters. And uh, you're 102. And I was like, well, can you measure me again? And I compressed myself as hard <laughs> as I could in that seat. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, all right, yeah, you're good. Holy uh, smokes. And then when I went to, uh, when I was in flight school, they said, uh, okay, if you want to fly Kiowas, you can only be 95 centimeters sitting height. And, uh, and I was like, well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll never fly Kiowas, you know? And then we got right up to the point where they were picking aircraft and I was like, I, you know, I, I don't, is that true? And so we, uh, I made the, the cadre there do some investigating and they call out and they're like, no, no, that's old stuff. So, so in the Kiowa warrior, they have, um, the, the roof essentially above your head is, mm-hmm. is kind of bowed up right uh, versus the old school. Cause when I did fly the old, uh, what they call the alpha Chuck model for a couple weeks in a certain phase of training. And it was incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, I basically flew with my head cocked to the side for, oh, wow. for two weeks or whatever. Yeah, it was miserable. So, uh, but plenty of headroom, even though I did occasionally turn on the, um, uh, infrared anti-collision light because the switch was behind us, <laughs> yeah. behind the head. And so when I was wearing my night vision goggles, you know, you got like the battery cable that would go right. from the goggles to the battery pack right. in the back of your helmet. And uh, if I didn't like tighten it down on something, I would turn my head and flick that switch. And uh, and I remember an instructor pilot was flying behind me one time. And he's like, hey, why do you guys keep turning your collision lights on and off? And, <laughs> we don't want to get hit. I, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's um, crazy! Yeah, no, you would, yeah, definitely not fit into an F sixteen. I, I sat in one of those, and um, I think I was the thing about the sixteen that really surprised me was is how far the the joystick actually moved. Right, the flight stick is like maybe an inch this way, maybe an inch to the other yeah. way, and I'm like, how do you have precision? I mean, it'd be an interesting question to ask somebody who flies a sixteen. It's like the controls are so minute on the right. Yeah. you know, how do you how do you uh, have the accuracy that those guys have, especially things like the Thunderbirds? You know, when they're flying. Uh, pretty close, yeah. but um, yeah, it's a super interesting aircraft. Yeah, I'd heard that about um, the F-16 is, you know, it's, you even think about turning and you're turning yeah. because you're just twitching, you know, your hand. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I'd never even paid attention to it until I started playing around with those VR goggles I got and uh, jumping into DCS. And, and I looked down at the joystick and I was like, man, that thing is barely moving. Yeah, so, no doubt. I think you fly it more um, by consciousness than you do by touch, you know? <laughs> so yeah. You got to yeah, think exactly. about what you want to do, you know? Yeah. No, it would definitely take some, some getting used to you. But we'll, uh, we'll definitely get into that with him because I'm, I'm curious and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are curious as well. But I know it'll be sacrilege to have a jet guy on the, on the podcast. But as I have pointed out, I, I, 
you know, I don't want to stay completely in the helicopter realm. You know, if it's air to ground, I'm interested in it. I think it'd be a, be a good show. Well, I mean, it's really just aviation in general, right? Um, and, yeah. and not even sometimes, maybe not even just military aviation, right? You have a lot of sure. civilian aviation as well. And there's a lot of mix between the two, right? You have a lot of military pilots that come out and go to civilian they got great histories in both. And, uh, you know, as you know, civilian flying is way different than military flying. And it's really two different styles of being a pilot. There's a lot of difference between that military pilot and the civilian pilot. But, um, you know, just having helicopter uh, pilots on, um, this is a community, you know, and the community is not only just uh, helicopter guys, but it's, um, you know, fighter pilots as well and uh, heavy lift. And it's going to be, uh, you know, all sorts of different types of pilots. This is a, you know, this is Pilot is a pilot is a pilot. Whether it flies a an ultralight or it flies a, you know a, a C twelve or a, you know something heavy C five for instance. You know it's um, well, a pilot is a pilot, and that's makes great community. Yeah, yeah, and I mean everyone's got some good stories, and that's really what we're uh, what we're about here. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of stories, I mean, I think we've got some good ones today. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Andrew Maxwell, who is a Marine Corps Huey pilot, and he's currently stationed out in Okinawa. And uh, we recently spent some time uh, actually right around Christmas time and had a quick conversation about his experiences uh, as a Huey pilot. So I hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody. Today we're joined by Andrew Maxwell, who's a United States Marine and flies UH-1 Hueys. How you doing, Andrew? Hey, Brian. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me this morning. Uh, this morning in Okinawa, so... Yeah, it's a Saturday morning in Okinawa and a Friday night here in the States on the East Coast. Uh, how's, how's the weather out there? Does it, get, does it get pretty cold there or what? No, it's, it's you know, pretty tr- subtropical climate here. Um, the last few weeks it has dropped into the, uh, the 60s probably, but uh, lots of rain. Uh, but yeah, 60 is about as cold as it's going to get out here. Yeah, I guess I was looking at a map the other day because I was, I was trying to make sure time zones and all that stuff. And, and uh, Okinawa is actually south of Korea, right? Yep. Yeah, it's about a uh, probably about a two hour flight up to uh, Korea, you know, Seoul or, or anywhere up in the, the peninsula there. So. Yeah. OK. Yeah, I spent a little time in Korea. It definitely gets cold there. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, the coldest I've ever been, I think it was minus 20 my first I left Florida when I came on active duty. I left Florida and it was 70 degrees and I arrived in Korea. It was February and it was yeah, it was like negative 20 at night. So yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. I actually, uh, my first, uh, assignment out here in Okinawa was flying the, uh, the UC 12 for the Marine Corps. And, okay. uh, so I would leave, leave, uh, MCAS Fatema, which is the Marine Corps air station on Okinawa, fly up to, uh, like Pohang in, you know, it's January here, probably 70, 75 degrees. So no jacket, no, no, anything, uh, warming <laughs> layers roll into Pohang and it's, you know, minus 10 and I'm just trying to gas up the plane, just freezing. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, totally. Definitely got to check the weather. Um, <laughs> all right, well, uh, let's just do kind of a quick bio and just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, how you got into the Marines, if you did anything before flying and, and where you're at now. Yeah, sure thing, Brian. Um, so yeah, I was born in, uh, East coast of Florida, um, born and raised there. Um, my whole family is, you know, you got to uh, tell Mel- me where now <laughs> Melbourne. Oh, okay. yeah. So, right. I'm, right. I'm a Tampa guy. So, okay, cool. Yeah. My, my godfather lives in Tampa, uh, actually like up North of Tampa in Odessa. Um, so yeah, he lives up there. I've, I've been to Tampa plenty of times, but yeah, my whole family is in Florida still. Um, 
you know, sister in Orlando, parents are in Cocoa, um, kind of relocated over the years. But uh, yeah, I grew up there. Um, you know, I, c- I come from a pretty long uh, background of military uh, service. So it was from a young age, it was like not a matter of if, but just when uh, and how I went about joining. So uh, graduated high school and uh, went up to uh, Virginia, actually, to college at uh, VMI, which is pretty hot in the news lately. Um, went up there, um, did my first year. It was 2003. So obviously, OIF and everything is really kicking into high gear at that point. Um, being a uh, 19-year-old hard charger, I was, I was worried I was going to miss the fight. So, um, <laughs> I, I went down to the recruiter in uh, Lexington, Virginia, um, talked to him, had everything lined up, told my dad, my dad was a Marine and, uh, my godfather actually that I was telling you about, uh, was a Marine with my dad as well. Uh, so they drive up to Virginia, take me out to dinner, try to convince me that it's a terrible idea to enlist. Um, you know, they're like, just finish college commission. You can do it that way too. Um, Okay, okay. They left to go back to Florida. I went back to Lexington and uh, told the recruiter I was ready to sign up. Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so signed up, and then uh, after my first year of college, you know, I went into the reserves. So that was kind of the uh, the middle ground, I guess you could say. So went into the reserves. Um, you know, did Paris Island in the summer between my freshman freshman and sophomore year, and then. Um, Got back to school about what was actually if I if I back up so if anyone's familiar with Marine Corps boot camp you have range week and then there's a like team week I don't know what they call it now but I was donating blood and uh, that's the only time I'll ever donate blood because I wasn't getting yelled at at that point <laughs> so I signed up I'm like yeah I'll donate blood for sure um, you know apple juice and cookies afterwards okay um, I think I did the same thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a it's a perfect excuse to get out of the squad bay for an hour and uh, yeah. be treated like a human being. Um, yeah. I'm sitting there, and my buddy, uh, it was a bunch of us from from VMI that went through boot camp that summer, and uh, he's like, "Hey, uh, the unit we're going to is going to Iraq next year," and so I kind of found out then that okay, this is happening. Um, so now we we finish boot camp, get back to VMI, do our first drill weekend. And uh, the captain was like, hey, if you guys want to go, I can make it happen. Um, but if you don't want to go, I totally understand. And, uh, you know, a bunch of us were like, no, we're going. And um, he pulled some strings, got us down to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. We did all of our, um, you know, MOS school. So we were all combat engineers. Um, did that and then did our, I guess you guys, like AIT, um, yeah. we, we do... Um, a similar training uh, there at Camp Geiger, uh, which is just adjacent to M- MCS New River. Did that and then headed out to 29 Palms for uh, two months or so, pre-deployment leave in Vegas, and then uh, <laughs> went, over, went over to Iraq in, uh, in 2005 um, with a uh, infantry company. It was with uh, 3rd Battalion, 25th Marines, uh, Lima Company, and uh, I was stationed at Haditha Dam, um, which is in the helm, uh, not sorry, not Helmand, uh, Al Ambar, getting my, mm-hmm. getting my countries mixed up, but in the Ambar yeah. province, 
It all blurs um, together after a while. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same, right? Um, so it was there for uh, for six months, just uh, attached to a infantry platoon, going out and clearing houses. Anything they found that was kind of a explosive concern, they'd usually grab an engineer and we would uh, we would handle that. Okay. So um, did that, and uh, we you know kind of go back to that, but um, that's kind of where there was one operation on that thing. And this is kind of where it comes full circle, I guess, to tying this back into aviation and where I'm at today. Um, we were in, uh, it was in May of 2005, um, operation Matador. Uh, it's also known as the battle for Al Qaim, uh, up by Syria. Um, we were up there, we, you know, rode Amtrak's in, um, you know, big tracked amphibious vehicle that, um, it's got a, a 50 cal and a 40 millimeter uh, grenade launcher on the top or a um, we rode those into town uh, dismount. And then we basically swept from one side of the city to the other side of the city. And uh, I just remember a real sticky spot that day. You know, I, I look up and I just hear uh, Huey and a Cobra overhead. And uh, it was at that time, you know, everything just kind of went calm on the ground. Shooting stopped. And we were like, yeah. man, if we could just have them on the overhead, you know, the entire time we're out here, like this would be amazing. Um, so that's kind of, I was like, all right, I'm going to do that somehow. I didn't know how, like whether I was going to go active duty enlisted and be a crew chief or finish college and, and fly them. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, so that's kind of your, uh, your, your full circle thing with that. Okay. All right. So, so how did you get there then? You know, you were an engineer. How did you become a pilot? Yep. So uh, after this, this deployment, um, went back to VMI, um, struggled a lot with uh, kind of the transition back to an academic setting. And, yeah. you know, especially at a school where they're trying to mold, you know, future leaders and um, give you that military experience. And I was kind of like, well, I've already I've already yeah. got that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I've, I've been there and I got the T-shirt. Um, so yeah, I struggled back a little at that bit. time. It was, it was feast or famine, right? You had a lot of guys who, who'd been to combat, but then you had a lot that hadn't been, you know, it wasn't, you know, five years later, you had a hard time finding anybody who hadn't deployed yet, but yeah. Oh, four, Oh five. Oh, even Oh six timeframe. It, it was a little bit of a, a mix up. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there was a, a good group of, you know, like I said earlier, you know, a bunch of us from VMI, we all deployed with the, the same company. So we were all back at school and then, um, but yeah, a lot of the staff, um, shoot, man, I mean, there was a couple from the Gulf war. I mean, general P, uh, he's army, army brother of yours. Um, you know, he was there. Um, but obviously so far removed from the, uh, from the cadets that are at school, but yeah, a couple of, couple of peers that had deployed, uh, some army guys that had, had, you know, gone over, but, um, yeah, it was a unique experience. I don't think VMI was really, any school really would be well equipped at that time to handle that kind of thing. No. But, um, finished up school. Um, I ended up graduating, um, a year and a half late. So originally I was a class of 07. I graduated in December of 08, um, out of VMI and, uh, ended up for, for Marine officers. You know, there's a couple of different ways you can go about, uh, becoming an officer. Obviously there's, um, if you're, active duty enlisted, you can go MESEP, which is the Marine Enlisted Commissioning 
think the other E is for education program, but um, it's basically um, enlisted to officer. So you go to OCS one summer for 10 weeks, finish up college, and then you're commissioned. Um, the route I did was the PLC, the platoon leaders course. Uh, so I went two summers in a row to Quantico for a, a six week session each summer. And, um, you know, OCS, it's the same for, for everyone, academics, um, a lot of PT, um, just counting down your days until you're done for the summer. Um, finished that, um, commissioned in December after graduation and then, um, started TBS, which is the basic school in Quantico. It's a six month, six month course for newly commissioned Marine Corps officers and uh, warrant officers. Um, basically makes you a basic infantry platoon commander. Um, so you go through land nav, basic tactics and um, learn how to lead a rifle platoon um, because, you know, every Marine rifleman, uh, they still hold pretty true to that. So uh, knock that out. And then, um, yeah, went down to Pensacola. I listened to the last podcast with the, uh, with a Navy Lieutenant from uh, Washington that's out flying yeah. SAR. Um, yeah. So yeah, the flight school process was exactly the same for me. Um, you know, I was listening for any, any changes, but uh, I think he went through about two to three years after me, but everything's the same API. I did all my flight school in Pensacola. So I went up to Whiting uh, okay. North for the T-34 up there. Um, and then selected uh, helicopters, you know, the, process for us is exactly the same. Um, I think we had to list all of the platforms possible for the Marine Corps, which was uh, helicopters, tilt rotor, jets, or C-130. They were still doing um, guys in the uh, Prowler at that point, uh, which they've since, you know, sundowned and gotten rid of the Prowler. But um, yeah, you rack and stack just like anything else. I, I think I put, I think I did have helicopters first. And then I went through this weird phase where I was like, Oh, Ospreys sound cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I think those might've been second and then like C one thirties and jets. Um, but I got, I got what I wanted. Um, so I just went to the South field and, uh, flew the TH 57, um, had a great time doing that. Um, you know, all the stories that, uh, that he, what was his name? Lieutenant, um, or his first name, Alex, Alex, Okay. Yeah. So at least I can use his, his uh, name. So yeah, all the stories Alex was saying were, were exactly the same, you know, like the cool cross countries. I didn't go to Key West. I went to like, I think I went to Nashville or Memphis and then I went to Charleston. Um, we had a great time doing that. Um, I was able to just like, like he did afterwards went down to Pensacola and you said like that old guy came out and gave the, uh, did the, the gouge prep for the, uh, for the test. Yeah. Um, took that test and got all my, my civilian ratings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good opportunity. I, I know guys that didn't do that at flight school and then kick themselves, you oh. know, years down the road that they had never done that. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to take advantage of it and yeah. we can talk later about, uh, some of the other things that I've been able to tack on, like just on the, on the Marine Corps dime, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so got those ratings, um, and then, uh, again, another, you know, rack and stack, put your dream sheet in. Um, 
So our list was pretty extensive then for out of coming out of advanced and whiting. So um, I went back and forth a lot. Uh, I was like, am I going to go 53s uh, and fly, fly the, uh, the big iron or, you know, go a little bit uh, tactical, get into the Huey. I, I knew I wanted to do something that could carry uh, Marines in the back. Hmm. Um, I, I was, you know, I wasn't opposed to the Cobra, but I liked the diversity that the, sure. the Huey and the 53 offered. They kind of do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I put, yeah, go well, ahead. That makes sense with your background. You know, it sounds to me like, you know, you were a guy that, that could have benefited from that on the ground as far as being carried around. You were an engineer doing some infantry guy stuff. So you were, you know, kind of cross training. So it, it seems to lend itself to, you want to be able to kind of touch all those things. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, I put, uh, Huey's and then, so we also stack, uh, so it's type. So what do you, or model, what do you want to fly? And then where do you want to fly it? Um, so I, I think I had Huey's West coast Huey's at that point, they had just sent a squadron to Hawaii. So I put, uh, Huey's Hawaii and then Huey's East coast and then Cobra's then 53s. And then I had, they were still, believe it or not, um, sending Marines to 46s. Um, so yeah, my, my roommate actually was, uh, one of the last guys to leave flight school and go fly the 46. Now he's an Osprey pilot. They transitioned most of them pretty quickly. Um, in fact, they didn't even leave the, uh, the rag squadron when they, they went to Pendleton. Um, they went through the FRS and then they just stayed there. Um, basically waiting to, to transition. So it's kind of weird, but probably an issue with funding. You know, they'd already allocated those numbers and there was no way to change it. They were going to go, you know, for good or bad. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I packed up, uh, packed up the house, the dog, and I wasn't married at the time. So I, you know, drove out to, drove out to Pendleton and I got there and, uh, moved in, about October of 11. Yeah. October of 11. So, uh, got to Pendleton and then, yeah, just went through the entire syllabus flying the Huey. It's a lot like the, uh, a lot like Alex's experience in the 60. I'd say a little less on the tactical, um, application of the aircraft, um, than what the Navy does. So we showed up and, um, learn how to fly the, fly the thing, you know, basic checklists. Um, and then we do everything from a terrain flight, uh, formation, flying instruments. Again, um, we do a couple of night hops, night formation, some low level nav routes, uh, around Southern California. Um, and then you do a couple of shoots, um, on camp Pendleton there. Um, you go out and just, it's called the white rock. It's literally, a a white rock in the middle of the range and you just shoot at it. <laughs> um, so I think, I think you do like two hops, uh, shooting rockets out there. And then you do, uh, the PQM check, the pilot qualified and model NATOPS check. Um, for, for me, that was, uh, you know, Hey, plan a, an hour and a half route. Um, you need to land at this many airports. They just want to make sure that you can fly the aircraft, talk on the radios, um, right. go in and out of airspace. It, was really nothing tactical for me. Um, so yeah, I flew around, went up to like the East and then flew up to like Hemet, uh, and then back down to Pendleton and that was it. Um, 
They're like, cool. And it's, it's, it's funny. Cause they're like, all right, you're, you're a PQM now, but when you get to the squadron, you have, you pretty much have no legs to stand, to stand on. You're just, uh, you're the boot and yeah. no one likes you. <laughs> so they're like, yeah, that's cool. You did the three or three thing. Like you're, you're not shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because that sounds a little bit more like the army experience than the uh, the navy experience, where it sounded like Alex was saying, you know, you, you kind of show up and you're integrated right away, but uh, yeah, you're showing up as the, the effing new guy. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, so yeah, we um, you finish that up, and um, a funny story, I guess. So my wife, I, I mentioned to you, you know, in setting this up, that she's a she's a Cobra pilot. Yeah. Um, so I. I knew of my wife at Pendleton. <laughs> she was the adjutant. She was the adjutant, but I, you know, I was a lieutenant, and uh, she was a captain. So I was like, "Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk to her." Like, clearly, that's a bad move. Um, <laughs> and then we, you know, we linked up later on uh, on the East Coast. She was in the sister squadron of mine. So, okay. um, yeah, but it's just it's funny how that all works out. Um, yeah, but yeah, so I got um, my orders to to New River over in Eastern North Carolina, right across from Camp Lejeune. Um, so I got out there in uh, July of 12. <clears throat> so you can see, obviously, like our our FRS pipeline is a little shorter than yeah. I think the Navy. is just closer to a year. Ours is about, you know, eight months. And I had a pretty significant delay in there. Um, there had been a mishap just prior to me showing up to 303. Um so that delayed my start a little bit until after Christmas of, uh, so I started in like January of 12, really. Um, yeah, got to, got to new river and, uh, it's, uh, a brand new syllabus starting it all over again at like, okay, they showed you how to start the aircraft, but now we're going to show you how to start the aircraft. Right. <laughs> they showed you a little nav. We're going to show you a little nav. Um, yeah. so it's a lot of like, <clears throat> cool. You sort of know how to do it, but we're going to show you the way, um, so you go through that and um, yeah, you're just basically working up to, uh, to be a, a qualified co-pilot. Um, most of the missions you can't even fly because you haven't done any low light flying. Um, you've never been to the ship um, in a Huey anyways. Um, so yeah, a lot of just rinse and repeat, um, making you more qualified to fly an actual fleet aircraft. Um, yeah, so that was that was me getting to get to my first squadron. So let's talk a little bit about the mission. Um, you fly Hueys. What what do Hueys do in the Marine Corps? Like like what are the various missions that you're going to be asked to do as a Huey pilot? Yeah. So the Hueys, you know, it, it is funny. So combat engineer, same thing. Uh, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, you know, we'd obviously like to think of ourselves as like, oh, I'm I'm the master of this. I'm you know I'm the the go to guy, but um, the Huey is really the same thing. It's a um, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, so you, you could do anything, uh, I, I wrote out here, but, uh, so offensive air support, utility support, escort, um, airborne supporting arms coordination. So like FAC a call for fire, things like that. Um, so we kind of do a little bit of everything, whether that's, um, you know, Obviously, the the biggest thing for an HMLA, the Marine Light Attack Helicopter Squadron, um, we have Hueys and Cobras organic to the squadron. So, 
what you'll typically see, uh, depending on the mission set, would be a mixed section. So you'd have a Huey and a, a Cobra going out as a as a section uh, right. to fly. And I guess, I mean, there are some differences. You know, I'm not super familiar with Army aviation, but I know that you're kind of rotor wing is a maneuver element, um, whereas the Marine Corps is to support the support the MAGTAF, support the Marines on the ground. Um, that's our whole mission. Um, so close air support, um, you know, we'll go out there and, and like I said, going back to Iraq, like as soon as you, as soon as you show up, um, you know, there's like a sense of calm, I guess the Marines on the ground are like, oh, thank God the Hueys are here. The Cobras are here. Um, or, you know, commonly referred to, they just call us skids. Um, cause we, <laughs> we don't have wheels. We still have, you know, skid landing gear. Um, but yeah, utility support, um, Kazavac, we obviously can't do the medevac mission. We don't have the uh, personnel um, or really the space to do it. Um, so in extremis, we could, um, you know, pull wounded or, or whatever out, out of a battle site um, and, and take them back to rear for uh, medical support. Sure. Armed escort, huge moment. We do a lot. Um, we train to it in the States and then, um, obviously later on in Afghanistan, we're doing armed escort a lot, um, for the Ospreys and 53s, um, so d- did that a lot. And then, um, the supporting arms coordination, um, that's kind of a higher level qual. Uh, everyone goes through and, and knows basic call for fire. So we can do that. But the, the FAC A, the Ford air controller airborne is, uh, a, a more senior level qual. Um, and you, you don't see a whole lot of that outside of training. Yeah, so that's an actual like you have to go through some sort of syllabus training to to be a fat gay, correct? Yeah, basically it's um it's funny uh, it's kind of like a tactical air control party ground school. So you go through a, a squadron um, internal ground school essentially, learn about forward air controlling, and then it's you know I think it's about a week or two weeks long, and then you actually have a syllabus, a fat gay syllabus. Um, that's, I think three to five flights, um, before you can be, uh, designated, uh, FAC A. Okay. And there's, I'm certain some sort of, uh, uh, sort of, uh, continuation of training that you, you know, you've got to get so many controls or things like oh, that yeah. over a six month period, maintain your qualification. Okay. Yep. Just like the ground side, but you're just doing it from an aircraft. Right. So let's pull the thread a little bit. Uh, y- you mentioned the, the mixture of the squadron and, and aircraft flying together. You know, that's for the army. That is kind of a rarity. We, we've done it when, you know, when I was a Kiowa guy, it, it, I don't want to say it was uncommon, but uh, we would occasionally have a mission where you would have a, a 64 paired with a, a 58 and, and they would kind of do what I can only imagine is you guys were kind of doing the same thing where Huey's maybe a little bit more of the, the scout and the, the Cobra's a little bit more of the gun, but um, but typically that was not something, in fact, I can't remember ever training that way, uh, before deployment. It was kind of one of those things that you hodgepodge together on, on scene. Is, is that something that you guys train pretty standard before deployment in your workups? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I wouldn't, I would never say that they're interchangeable, the Huey and the Cobra, but, um, as far as our tactics, um, you fly exactly the same as you would if it was a pure section of Hueys or a mixed section Huey and Cobra. Um, there are, you know, obviously some missions 
where you would be like, okay, this is definitely going to be a, a pure Huey section. Um, typically more assault support um, oriented mission. Um, if you're just going out for cats and, and now this is, this is where things are probably changing in, in Marine Corps aviation. Um, so my East coast squadron, like we didn't have the new Cobra, which has since been upgraded to the Z, uh, the Zulu. Uh, so we had the old school whiskeys with the two blades. Um, their sensor was a little bit, well, I wouldn't say a little bit, it was much less capable than the Huey sensor. Okay. Um, so what you, what you got with, with pairing up a whiskey and a Yankee was, you know, you got the hellfire and the 20 mil off the Cobra. Yeah. Um, but you got the extended range sensor from the Huey. And then we also carried, um, yeah, you know, we, we have the 50 and the mini gun, um, and then a myriad of rockets, uh, that we can shoot, but you guys have seven shot pods. Yeah. We typically flew only the seven shots. Sometimes you'd see, um, what is it? The wow. The 61 is the 19 shot, but, um, typically that was like the Cobra carried that we would just carry the seven. Um, it, with with the Huey, the the DAS mounts that uh, basically the you know the metal framework that's on the outside of the aircraft holding up the gun and the rocket pod. Mm. As soon as you put a as soon as you put a big pod on there, like a we we couldn't carry it fully loaded because of limitations on the mount, but it just got in the way. So the seven shot pod was was much easier and uh, you know, typical loadout for like Afghanistan would be. The 50 and mini, I think it was about 3,000 rounds on the mini gun, uh, 650 cal, and then uh, seven HE rockets on uh, on one side, and then we'd carry four APK uh, just because of the added weight and um, I guess maybe the numbers we had, but we just carried four APK. Okay. Uh, and you're talking APK WS, the laser guided? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And I, I think they're... Uh, they're straying away from, I think APK WS was, was kind of the, the term and it still is. Now they're yeah. calling them AGR one, uh, 19s, uh, alphas, bravos. They've done a lot with that. They put, you know, more HEN to make it like a 10 pound warhead. And yeah. Um, yeah. That was more of a, we actually, our first episode, we talked about that. Uh, that was originally more of a Navy weapon. So that makes sense. You guys are having them. We, we in the army didn't really get them. First time I saw them was my last deployment, which was 2018. Okay. Uh, and we were, you know, we had a handful of them. Um, but okay. So when you guys were doing stuff with the Culbers, I mean, uh, even those older Culbers, w- were you typically sensor and then guiding uh, any munitions from the Culber or was it a sensor handover to the Culber and then they would do their own lasing? Um. Yeah, it, it depends. It depends, obviously, right? Um, sure. Situation dependent. But um, a lot of times uh, we would help. We would we would be talking to the JTAC on the ground with, from the Huey. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, if lead was a, a Cobra, we would be listening, obviously, on TAD. So we'd hear everything. Um, we were usually able to acquire sooner than the Cobra, um, just depending on environmentals and things like that. And then we could we could do interflight communications to the Cobra, uh, get their sensor into the general area. And then obviously with the low threat in Afghanistan, we didn't have to maintain a whole lot of standoff. So unless, unless they were bent or, you know, their, their laser designator was not working. Um, typically they would just self laze their hellfire. 
Um, obviously if they were, you know, having, having issues, then we could pick up the lays. Like we're capable of doing that from the Huey as well. Right. Well, uh, any other kind of linkage with the other aircraft other than radios? Did you guys have link 16 or any other kind of systems like that? (laughs) No, unfortunately not. And that's, that's kind of the the bane of my existence right now. Uh, (laughs) and my current job is, is trying to bring, uh, bring some of the units into the fold of link 16 because it's an amazing capability that Marine Corps fixed wing does have, but on the ground, we don't have link 16 and rotor wing doesn't have link 16, which is kind of like, you're only getting half the picture. If you know, your rotors aren't, aren't in the link. Um, but no, we didn't have link at that time. Um, we did have the capability. Um, are you familiar with the Rover? Yeah. Yeah. So, we were able to pull the Cobra feed into the Huey on a tablet. Hmm. Um, so that made correlation a little bit easier that we could see exactly what they were looking at um, yeah. on a tablet. So they have um, a poor man's link 16 going on with the exactly. tablet in the cockpit. <laughs> yeah. And, and like huge kudos to the, the um, crew chiefs in the back of the Huey. I mean, those guys are incredible. Like they're the ones who are like, you know, they'll come out to the bird and they're like, Hey, sir, I got this thing. Like, check this out. Um, we can see everything the Cobra is watching on their, on their, uh, TSS. And, uh, <laughs> just like, wow, how'd you do that? You know, it's different generation. They're like yeah. electronic geniuses and they know how all that stuff works. So yeah, they're playing Xboxes and stuff. Yeah. That's, exactly. um, for, for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, Rover is basically a system that allows uh, JTAX on the ground. Uh, or really anyone who has access to the system that they can uh, tune in from uh, and, and get a download from, you know, UAS, fixed wing, you know, whatever, whoever happens to be able to transmit on this uh, particular bandwidth. Um, and it's obviously super helpful when you're on the ground and you can see a target and you're talking to an aircraft and trying to guide them in on that target. And you can see what they see and say, okay, no, you know, go, go north of what you're looking at right now and things like that. So, but you guys essentially, uh, made that portable in the aircraft and, and were able to use that. And we, in the Echo model Apache, we had pretty much that capability built in where you could pull up the other guy's feed and and look through their TADs uh, and things like that. So yeah, the situational awareness comes with Link 16 and comes with uh, those sort of data links is, is incredible. And, and you don't know it until you play with it. You know, like it's as a 58 guy, I was very comfortable with just using the radio. You know, and just saying, hey, to your left, okay, yeah, 11 o'clock, you know, something. Uh, once you get into that world where you do have that sort of technology and that capability, it is really hard to go back. <laughs> Very hard because you have just such situational awareness, especially at night. Uh, it's incredible. So, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm jealous that all the fixed wing guys have had that stuff for so long, but it, it's really missed out in the, uh, in the rotowearing world. Yeah. And, and it's funny not to, not to rag on, on uh on bell or the marine corps dod at large but you know it's funny we come out with this brand new uh brand new helicopter and we don't we don't have vdl in the huey so we're pushing cobra video to the the guys on the ground and so i guess that was kind of helpful to see that link so you hear the jtac talking about what he's seeing from the downlink from the cobra it looks nothing like the huey picture obviously um, so yeah. then being able to like pull up the tablet and see exactly what everyone is talking about was super helpful. So you do have some cargo space, obviously in the, 
uh, Huey, what kind of packs are you able to carry? How, how does that affect your weapons load? Like, talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so um, I would say at any given time with a full ordnance load, we could we could comfortably three to four Marines um, in the back. And then you get into the weird thing with, uh, you know, and I don't know if 60s are the same way, but seats in, seats out, combat, not combat, right. um, over water, not over water, day, night. Um, the list goes on, but um, at any given time, um, with the 50 cal and the minigun, you could, you could comfortably get three guys in the back. Um, if you had to get them out of somewhere or insert somewhere. Um, and that, and that's another thing that's great about the Huey. It's so versatile. Um, you know, if, if we get fragged for a mission, you know, say it's, it's, you know, we're coming on shift, it's midnight. And, uh, at six o'clock, they want to do a, an insert of a 12 man team easy day. Like we just got to the, got to the aircraft. They may even strip the, de- the, the pods off. Um, try not to do that cause they're bore sided to the aircraft, right. but, um, yeah. yeah, just pull the guns off, throw on, uh, two forties. Um, and we can just run uh dual two forties, um, and then throw all the seats in and probably carry at least six, uh, per aircraft with their two crew chiefs in the back as well. So I've, I haven't really seen more than six. That's about, that's about max, for the back of the Huey. Okay. Was that something that was commonly happening in a deployed environment or no? Um, yeah, it would, it would happen. Um, you kind of, so for, for people that aren't familiar, there's ASRs and, and JTAR support essentially for, at least, uh, for what we were typically seeing. So assault support requests, um, which was people gear, resupplies, things like that. And then JTAR was a joint tactical, uh, air request. And that was more of a, more of CAS. Uh, you can think of them two, two different ways. So, uh, for the ASR mission, uh, we typically would fly that at night. Um, and I, I it's funny, my, both my deployments, I worked the midnight to noon shift. Um, so I did a lot of ASR support between like midnight and five thirty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we would, we would typically, you know, run people. So I was at, at, uh, at Bastion and, uh, we would just, People would meet us up at the hangar. We'd throw all their gear, five, six packs in the back, and then run them out to a fob. Um, we usually would do that um, for that small, smaller scale. Uh, we like to have the Cobra with us, um, obviously for more firepower and um, you know, talking tactics and mechanics. Like we would always just split the section going into the LZ. Um, so we would maintain like a thousand and below. They would have fifteen hundred and above. And then they would basically just be our eyes in the sky for any, anyone that tried to shoot at us, um, on ingress to the LZ. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to something you, you'd mentioned before talking about the roles, um, between the, the Marines and the army. Cause that's a good point that a lot of people sometimes get a little bit confused on it. Uh, <laughs> particularly in the army. Uh, sometimes we get confused on this ourselves. So like you said, army aviation is considered more of a maneuver asset. So, a way to describe that is is the, the way I always try to tell guys is, you know, okay, picture a tank. Okay, now just picture that tank flying, you know, essentially the <laughs> same thing. So how would you order? How would you expect your tanks to operate? That is how we would operate versus the Marines typically, like you said, is is considered more of a, a, a supporting role in the sense that close air support. Like you guys are, it, it, from a 
from a doctrinal standpoint, close air support, whereas Army Aviation would not be for the, for the shooters. Uh, you guys are getting nine lines. You guys are talking to JTACs, whereas we're typically not. We can, but we typically don't. Well, that I think that's the fundamental uh, issue that sometimes we run into when we work with Marines or vice versa is is understanding that, that, that we do have a common language. We just happen to be doing things a little bit differently. And I, I've certainly seen people get tripped up on that. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely worked with some, uh, there's a lot of Apaches at Bastion. They were primarily British guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just the, I guess the, the techniques and the tactics are just totally different. I'd see them go into a, a 2000 foot hover hold and just drop 30 <laughs> mil, um, yeah. which is extremely accurate. I mean, with that, with that cannon, I mean, it's incredibly accurate. Um, but just completely different than, you know, how H ones fly, uh, fly attacks. And, um, well, I think too, kind of that lend that support. when you see other nations who do fly Apaches, they do things differently as well. Um, you know, we, I can't remember the last time I hovered in combat pretty much never, you know, it's like it's yeah. landing. Um, but you do see like, we've worked with the Dutch where I was at and they flew Apaches and, and yeah, they would, they would do things differently as well. I mean, they would fly them incredibly low, you know, at low altitudes that as Kiowa guys, we would fly, but Apaches, you wouldn't, you know, American Apaches, you wouldn't see down that low. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some, some disparity when we talk about our foreign partners and how they fly some of those aircraft. But, um, so tell us about deployment. So when did you deploy as a, as a Huey guy and tell us a little bit more about that. You did mention Bastion. Is that, is that, one deployment to Afghanistan. Did you do any more back to Iraq? Uh, no. I, so after 2005, I was done in Iraq. Um, never, never went back there. Um, but, but uh, yeah, so I got to my first squadron in uh, July, August of 2012, and then immediately started working up for uh, uh, Afghanistan deployment in 2013. So uh, for, for the Marine Corps, uh, kind of the center point, the focus point of all our training uh, occurs at 29 Palms out in California. Um, so just, you know, hundreds of square miles of range space that we can go out there and simulate everything that we're going to do in combat. So we have, um, uh, you know, we could kind of branch off and talk about MAGTAF and the Marine Air Ground Task Force and how that's organized and, and who we're supporting. But all the elements of the MAGTAF are present at 29 Palms for these exercises um, so all the planning, briefing, execution, all of that is done uh, exactly how it will be done in combat. So we go out there prior to our deployment, and then sometimes you're even working with the people that are you know going to be on the ground. Like they're working for the exact same squad, and it's going to be supporting them when they get to Afghanistan, which is pretty neat uh, to kind of like build some of that um, that those base relationships um, established. TTPs and SOPs for when you get over there makes things a little bit st- more streamlined. Uh, but yeah, so 29 Palms with uh, HMLA-167 um, East Coast Squadron. Um, and then in uh, about March, May, it was May of 2013, um, we deployed over to Camp Bastion, um, got there, uh, and then, yeah, I mean... It's a, a normal normal deployment for us. Uh, How long get are your there? Uh, for us, it's six months. Okay, so a little bit shorter, I think, than than most of the army units uh, were doing at the time. 
You guys were like yeah. nine nine months to twelve months. Yeah, I think by that time it was back to nine months. Um, yeah, yeah, we were we were I mean, we were doing solid twelve months there for the longest time. But um, when you guys deploy, do you, I must do you fall in on aircraft that are already there? Do you typically take all your own? Is it kind of a mix? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix, right? So uh, we do fall in. I'd say we fall in on about like ninety five percent of the aircraft. Uh, mm-hmm. They're already there in Bastion. Um, when I flew over there, I rode over in a uh, C-17 from uh, Cherry Point, and it had, I want to say, two Hueys and a Cobra in the back. Um, we took that to Bastion, and then basically it was a swap, right? So they take two or three of their high-time birds that need to go back to the States, throw them in yeah. the C-17 once we offload ours, and then it, it kind of rotates like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we bring a few aircraft in, but we do, uh, for that deployment... We brought just about the entire squadron. We did have a small um, debt that came out here to Okinawa to support uh, UDP, which is uh, the unit deployment program. Just kind of having an HMLA presence in the in the Pacific because there is no organic um, light attack uh, squadron in the Pacific. Uh, that's Iwakuni and uh, Okinawa. Obviously, and that's Marine Corps. The Army has has their um, all of their aircraft here as well. But um, so yeah, we we split the squadron a little bit, but for the most part, it was a full squadron uh, going to Afghanistan. And um, yes, uh, same day to day that you would have anywhere else: uh, fixing aircraft, flying aircraft, testing aircraft. Um, you just have that added uh, mission that you're actually you're doing it for real. You're doing your job. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot like being at home, uh, just with less choices for dinner. I mean, exactly. Know, <laughs> the, the schedule is pretty much the same. You're flying, guys are working, the, the lights are always on at the hangar. Yeah. Yeah, deploying to Afghanistan is certainly a challenge for, well, for everyone, but, but you know, there's there's no port, you know, so getting your stuff there, a lot of stuff has got to come in. So bringing in aircraft is definitely challenging and yeah, we, we, we had the same issues where pretty much you, you fell in on, on some stuff there. Getting in and out of Iraq is obviously much easier because you've got, got the ports down there. But okay. So yeah. what's your current job? Uh, right now, um, I'm the, an, an, sorry, I'm an air officer at 5th Anglico. Um, so I'm one of, one of several JTACs up there, but uh, we, we typically have about, you'll see three like, people that hold the position of air officer. We have a company air officer and then um, looking at Anglico's uh, kind of composition, we have two brigades. And so a first brigade air officer and a second brigade air officer. And and tell us, what does Anglico stand for? Oh, sorry. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> Anglico is, uh, it's kind of unique to the, to the Marine Corps. I, I know the army has something very similar, um, drawing a blank on what they call that. Um, Anglico is Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. Um, and so the the whole concept of that is that we provide a liaison capability to the MAGTAF commander, right? So we don't necessarily work direct, like they won't task a, an Anglico to a company, a Marine Corps company or platoon. Um, we're typically going to be working with those, those partner nations in an adjacent adjacent battle space or adjacent to the MAGTAF uh, and, and working that liaison and coordination piece back to the, back to the MAGTAF commander. Um, so we have, we're, we're primarily composed of uh, 
artillery Marines, uh, communications Marines. And then we have a handful of pilots that serve as the, the air officer JTAC. Although a lot of our 08s are JTACs as well. Um, that's kind of where the pilots, the pilots come in to, cause obviously we understand that, that air picture a little bit better sure. and are able to manage that. Um, but, and then we also have, uh, a handful of joint fire observers, um, typically Lance Corporal to sergeants uh, that are acting as a JFO out there. Um, you know, lines four and six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and and what you're referring to, of course, the, the nine line line four being the target elevator. Yes. Elevation. Yep. And then six being the, the grid. See, I can remember these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think the air force equivalent to that would be like a, a tac P tactical air control party where you've got the, the, uh, air liaison officer and he's got his JTACs and, and, and uh, what do they call them? Romads, I think the, the radio yeah. operators army. We, so we kind of, we have, um, you've got the BAO brigade aviation officer, uh, which is a lot more integrated with the brigade. So for instance, if, if I go to be a BAO, I, I do work for that brigade commander, uh, that infantry brigade commander that I'm assigned to and on his staff. So it's not really a job that guys typically want um, because you are disconnected from aviation and you're at that point, you're kind of at the whim of this infantry or, or armor uh, brigade and, and doing what they want to do. But so for the Anglico, is that a job that guys look for? Is it something that you pretty much guaranteed you're going to get it at some time? How does that work? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it really does depend on um, a lot of different things. Um, just like uh, Alex was saying in the last one, um, we don't call them a dis- disassociated sea tour, um, but a B billet or a ground tour is kind of expected in the Marine Corps. Um, you go to your first squadron. So uh, I was I was in the East Coast from 12 until 2017. So at that point, I, I did the deployment with 167, um, kind of circling back. But I, I came back from that deployment. Uh, the CO was like, hey, who wants to come back here in six months? And I was the only single captain at the time. I raised my hand. I was like, yeah, I'll come back. Um, so I went to another squadron from the East Coast, HMLA 467, which was up at Cherry Point. Uh, deployed with them back, ex- same exact place. Like I probably slept in the same bed. Um Went back to Bastion, did that, and then uh, came back, finished up my time with the HMLA with a uh, the UDP I mentioned. I came out here to Okinawa, flew flew out here for six months, and then uh, went home, and then PCS out here. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of expected that you're after your four to five years in your first squadron, you're going to do something different, whether that's uh, school or you could get uh, follow-on orders to, to aviation, such as HMX-1. Um, what I did, I came out here and flew a uh, station, so Marine Corps Air Station support aircraft, uh, OSA, um, which is flying the UC-12 and UC-35. Um, you're going to do something outside of your your fleet aircraft. Okay. And it's not, it's not looked bad upon. Um, there are certain ones that are better than others, Um I would say Anglico or Recon are are some pretty good ones to, to be involved with because the tempo is pretty high. You're constantly doing things and doing training with uh with other Marines and right. Yeah, it's both so. muddy boots jobs, and that's that's good stuff. Yeah. Okay. 
So you do get to fly though if you're an angle co and you're co-located, you're you're able to do some flying or no? No, no. Okay. Um, so the Marine Corps has uh, die fop and diffed in uh, orders. So die fop is uh, basically means you're in a, a billet where you're going to be in a flying capacity, and diffed in means flying activities denied or you won't be oh, flying. Um, okay. So you you can get a diff. There's a diffed in waiver. Uh, you can, you can go about getting. So, um, if I, if I was a little less busy at work, I could probably get a diff in waiver and, and still fly the C12, but, uh, we're, we're pretty busy up there, uh, on camp Hansen. So I have not, not really looked into that and, uh, I'm, I'm rotating back to the States here in a few months. So, um, but yeah, it's, um, you'll do the ground tour and then depending on, uh, your qualifications and kind of needs of the Marine Corps, determines what happens next. Um, I'm in a weird spot. So I'm, I'm going to be going to Quantico um, where my wife is stationed. Uh, so I won't be flying there, um, unfortunately. So I'm holding out. Uh, fingers crossed for my uh, my Twilight Tour to be a, a flying job. Well, yeah, well, that's a, a thing I try to highlight as much as I can with people is just understand it. If, if you are interested in a military aviation career that you, you got to expect that at some point you're not going to be wiggling sticks. You know, it's just the reality of of the job yep. and uh, I don't care what branch you are, or what you know, rank you are that there's, there's some job somewhere out there where you're, unfortunately you're not going to get to fly, but it sounds like you guys and the Marines have at least pretty much codified that as say you, there's no question, you know, sometimes you'll get into jobs in the army. Like for instance, the job I have now, I, if I really pushed it, I could go fly. Um, even though I am in no way, shape or form associated with the aviation unit here, but then it's a question of, okay, well, how much time do I want to devote into, into doing it, you know, because as you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage that comes with being on flight status and the, um, the, you know, all the, the requirements to keep up with and, uh, you know, hours you've got to fly and stuff. So at some point you, you start weighing it against your job and, and what else you got going on and figuring out if you can, if you can hack it, but, um, yeah. okay. So moving on in a few months and, uh, yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up for now. I, I would, like to probably circle back sometime in the future uh yeah. and maybe pull a little bit more on the thread of the anglico and and certainly some some more about the huey but before we go why don't you give us a good uh, a good deployment story something something exciting all right so um i'll tell you about my first deployment in 2013 and um you know it's kind of a kind of a touchy subject i guess for me it's sometimes it's still even um kind of makes me uncomfortable or it, you know, honestly, it, it kind of scares me um, how this thing turned out. Um, so it was my first deployment. Um, it was actually my third flight in country. So uh, typically you'll do a few flights with the squadron you're replacing, just kind of basic AO. How do things work here? Um, yeah. Left seat, and right so seat, it, right seat. Yeah, left seat, right seat. Exactly. Um, so this was my first flight with a member of my squadron. Um, and... Uh, again is it was probably about it was about midnight midnight 30 and we were doing uh asr support so that assault support role um for for this first mission so about looking at a two-hour flight um all around uh hellman uh going to different fobs dropping off things people and then coming back to bastion was the plan um we launched out of there with a uh, cobra so it was a mixed section and we left bastion you know on goggles we fly out I was in the right seat, uh, flying, 
fine there. And then, um, so the, for the Marine Corps qual, quals, um, I was a, a basic co-pilot. Uh, I had my low light time. And then the left seater, the aircraft commander, was a WTI, a weapons and tactics instructor, which is the highest qual that the Marine Corps produces in aviation. Sure. Um, that's kind of like top gun-ish, right? I mean, that's the yeah. that's equivalency, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a it's like a two-month course in Yuma. Uh, they go out there and they do like full mission profile flying. It's uh, it's academic intensive. Um, you know, most WTIs are extremely proficient and competent and they're, they're great pilots. Um, but anyways, I had this, uh, this WTI in the left seat, we launched out and, um, you know, he's like, Hey, you know, Andrew, take, take the sticks, fly, fly the first hour or so. So I, I go into a couple of zones, everything is fine. Um, and then we kind of hit some confusion. Uh, one of the Marines in the back spoke up and was like, hey, you know, Hey, I was supposed to get off at this fob, but, uh, no one told me to get off. And, uh, so we're like, okay, we look at the gas, we talk to the Cobra. Yeah. Okay. We can, we can get, get you back to that fob and then we'll still have enough fuel to, to return to bastion. Um, so at this point, um, uh, the left seater WTI is like, Hey man, I'm going to take the controls. I'll fly this one. Um, so I've got about maybe 250, 300 hours in the Huey at this point. Uh, so I'm like, all right, cool. So he's flying. Um, now, typically, we fly at medium altitude in Afghanistan, so fifteen hundred feet. Uh, for the for the guys listening, it's just to keep us outside of pretty much the 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 wes for the majority of weapons that were in Afghanistan at the time. So AK forty sevens and RPGs, fifteen hundred feet keeps you pretty safe. Um, and then also flying at night uh, helps out a lot. Um, so. Yeah, because there's the first, no contrast too. When you're flying low in the desert under goggles, I mean, it, it's it's tough. Um, unless yeah. you get super low, and then you'll start to see contrast. But you know, by then you don't you don't want to be there. But, but yeah, flying up at altitude is is definitely that we did the same thing. So. Yep, yep. So uh, <laughs> this is the uh, the first point where I probably should have known something was wrong, uh, or you know maybe should have spoken up. Um, so he, he flew the entire leg up to uh, this next fob. Probably it was only about a 15-minute flight straight up the Hellman River. Um, he flew the whole thing at about 300 feet. Um, I didn't say anything. I was just like, well, <laughs> he's the WTI. Um, you know, it's his aircraft. Uh, you know, I'm just going to let this go. This is it's okay. And, and, of course, you know, it's fun flying low. Sure. Um, so we were going and um, we make our, our right turn. It's basically a, a right 90 into the zone. Um, so we make our right turn. We're at about 200 feet, 120 knots or so. And a uh, slang term in, in rotor wing community is a hockey stop. Like basically you, you pull back on the cyclic, push the collective down and kind of use the rotor as a big air brake. Yeah. Um, so we make our right 90 into the zone. He does this hockey stop to, to slow us down and get us to kind of intercept a, a landing profile for the, the zone, which is inside, a, you know, HESCO barrier, which is basically um, the metal giant sandbag. Yeah. Giant sandbag. Yeah. So it's enclosed around this uh, HESCO barriers. Um, I'm, I'm looking out over the dash trying to stay, you know, contact on the zone. 
And uh, I'm listening up to the crew chiefs are calling out, you know, airspeed air and altitude. Um, and then I just hear them. Yell, I hear one of the crew chiefs yell airspeed. And uh, I kind of like snap out of looking at the zone. And I, I look down and out of the, uh, the window. We had doors on. And I'm, I just, I can see the ground and I can see that we're not, not really moving. And then I look inside and, um, on our MFD, I can see that we're at basically zero knots ground speed, um, which is a bad place to be. Um, when you're super heavy, you know, we had full load of ordnance. We had four British, uh, uh, Marines in the back and then one Marine Corps staff sergeant, two crew chiefs. So we were sitting at four, five, six, seven people in the back. Um, and yeah, we, the, the WTI attempted to recover it, um, pushed the nose over, pulled all the collective we had, um, which will cause uh, loss of tail rotor effectiveness or LTE. Um, so we entered a uh, right descending spiral, um, fell under about goggles. a hundred under goggles. Yep. Um, everything in the cockpit is just like screaming at us, you know, yeah. like <laughs> lights are going off, like over torquing the, it was, uh, it was quite the experience. Um, so we spun, um, 270 degrees, um, and fell about 150 feet. Uh, we hit the ground right outside the fob. Um, skids broke off. Um, we were just sitting on the belly of the aircraft <laughs> um, I thought I died. Um, you know, I, I, I could, there was nothing you could do. I, I pushed my hands against the dashboard as hard as I could to try and prevent my face yeah. from, uh, smacking, you know, knocking out. So I just pushed as hard as I could. Um, we hit the ground and my, my goggles fell off or, uh, went, went black. The MFDs went black. I was like, I just died. Um, yeah. you know, and then I kind of came, I came out of it. I hear the engine still turning and uh, we just executed our procedures, which were a little, little non-standard. Um, you know, I had to have the crew chiefs get out and actually like cut the fuel uh, manually to the engines. Cause I couldn't do that from the cockpit. Um, but yeah, we got out and um, you know, the rest is history. We had a lengthy investigation process, uh, took us both out of flying for about five weeks. Um, and you know, is, is one of those things where in hindsight, you know, at the, the result of the investigation board was, uh, for me, they, they told me that I should have been more assertive, which in hindsight, yeah, I should have, uh, should have definitely spoke up and said something or, or called wave off, uh, much earlier than uh, we got into our situation uh, where we yeah. couldn't recover. Um, but it was, it was a good lesson. Um, unfortunately, it was learned the hard way. Um, but I was able to take that forward as an instructor later on and, you know, remind the new guys coming up, like, just because, just because I've got, you know, over a thousand hours and I've deployed multiple times in this aircraft, like, I will kill you just as fast as you yeah. can kill me. Um, so that, that was kind of the big lesson there was, uh, you know, yeah, your instructor's got experience, but this, this thing's a helicopter and it's, it's not supposed to fly. Um, and yeah. it, you know, it will, it will turn on you very, very quickly. Um, so that was the biggest thing, but yeah, I got back to flying on that deployment and, um, 
yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's why I went back the second time. Uh, maybe I just felt like I kind of got gypped a little bit on my first one and, <laughs> and wanted to redo it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, every, everything worked out and no one was hurt. Uh, thank God in that crash. Yeah. Um, everyone was, was perfectly fine. Um, yeah, I mean, you're touching on a lot of things that are certainly hammered home in, in flight school. And I'm sure it's the same for, for you guys and yours is, you talk about uh, excessive professional courtesy, and and that was one that was always drummed into our heads about you know your instructor pilot. Yes, you're automatically going to look at him as if he has all the answers, but the reality is he doesn't. You know because the conditions are going to change, and sometimes what comes with experience also comes with a little bit of an ego. Um, you know, and I I don't know the 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 background of of why the maneuvers were taken the way they were in your situation, but uh, it can certainly happen that somebody just finds themselves in a situation that they're just not prepared for, or, you know, their, their confidence is just greater than, than, than it should be for the situation. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's a huge lesson for someone that, you know, that was fairly early on in your career that it's good that you were able to, to walk away from that and, and live with that experience. But you see it all the time with, with new guys. And unfortunately you see it a lot of times with, with experienced guys, because it is that confidence issue and that's the perfect storm. And you've got somebody that's overconfident, um, with, with somebody that, that is new because yeah, they're very unlikely to say something. Um, yep. hundred percent you know, because you know, it's the fear of being wrong, right? I mean, it's the fear. Well, if I say something to him and all this works out fine, well, he's going to think I'm a coward, you know, or, you know, any number of things and you just don't want that. But at the same time, you also don't want to spread the skids. So it, yeah. you got to speak <laughs> up. Um, yeah. And, and night flying, I mean, it, the most conservative approach. I'm always a big fan of just taking the most conservative approach with all of my maneuvers. Unless I, you know, unless someone's shooting at me, then okay, you're going to bend it over and do things that you shouldn't. But uh, yeah, landing at an LZ at night when no one's shooting at you, uh, you definitely want to take it low and slow and, and work your way down. But yeah, I'm glad to, glad to see that you guys made it out of that. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's no mean feat. It probably doesn't sound like much maybe to people like, Oh, it felt like a hundred feet. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's a long ways to fall in an aircraft. And like you said, that, that sort of jarring, you know, impact and, and your sensory overload. You know, I was, I was shot in uh, Iraq flying and wow. uh, yeah. And the aircraft, just like you're describing, you know, a lot of things happened to the aircraft at the same time. And so we were getting a lot of, a lot of indications of things that had gone wrong and, you know, to couple that with your own body telling you that something is wrong. Uh, it, it is overwhelming. So I can only imagine the way it felt for you. Uh, wow. So you were, you were actually shot while flying yeah yeah christmas day 2006 so oh merry really christmas celebrate my uh <laughs> my anniversary <laughs> with, with sparky i keep them in a in a jar but yeah i've got this oh, little, wow. little, little <laughs> 762 reminder of iraq but uh but yeah but um yeah no all, all good well cool um yeah i think that'll probably wrap it up for for this one and that was a, a good story and honestly a good lesson i mean that's the yeah. it, it can happen you know and again I'm, I'm not trying to throw stones at the other guy i don't know you know i don't know the background and, and i may be implying that he did something on purpose i'm not i just uh it can happen to anyone regardless of your experience level regardless of your rank uh you should definitely you know back up your your left or right seat or front back seat or whatever you got and uh and make sure that they're all plugging away, you know, upstairs because it, it's very easy to, to kind of lose track of what you're doing. Sometimes, you know, you get into a rhythm and it, it sounds like you guys were kind of in a rhythm too. I mean, I'm sure for this guy, it was, you know, it was, it was an everyday occurrence to do these things, but yep. 
Yeah, so definitely complacency kills. You hear that all the it, time, and it is absolutely true. Definitely true. So, well, cool, man. I appreciate you taking the time and and sharing your experiences with us and and talking about uh, the marine aviation. I know we again we we did touch on the the flight school training, but there is some some variations there uh, as as you guys get further along in the process. And I appreciate you shedding some light on that and talking to us a little bit about the uh, Huey. Of course, I'm gonna have to hit you up for your wife because I need a Cobra pilot. So yeah, right. <laughs> but um, no, I, I appreciate you spending the time on your Saturday morning, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll have you back on. I'm sure in the future. Got it, Brian. Thanks so much. Well, Kelly, that was uh, quite a story from Andrew. What did you think about that uh, that crash? Unfortunately, it's probably close to being typical in a lot of crashes. I would assume. I you know. It's it's scary. It's it's scary to know that the the um, there's an interesting um, a story about an aviation uh, general aviation flight. It was a commercial flight, and um, it was the first officer was highly highly rated. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the captain was like highly rated. Had you know ten thousand hours or whatever, and there was a new guy, right? New new guy in the right seat, and um, things started going wrong. And he questioned the captain, and the captain basically just said like you know. Hey, shut up. I know what I'm doing. Mm. And um, he, you could hear through the audio tapes of the NTSB crash that um, he questioned him like twice, but he was a new guy. So he didn't want to question the authority of, of this senior captain, you know, and uh, they wound up, of course, crashing and, and killing everybody on board. Mm. And the NTSB found that uh, the co-pilot, even though he was, uh, you know, a brand new first officer, um, not having the wherewithal to basically tell the captain okay this this is happening and th- you have to do you have to take this action he wasn't forceful enough to, even though he knew they were you know they were in dire dire uh, um a, a serious serious problem yeah. so it's um unfortunately that's kind of the way it is with new people right in any job you have a veteran on the uh, on the job with you and you're supposed to be kind of be learning from them and and uh, if something you know, if you see something that's not right, um, a lot of people hesitate to call that out because it's like, well, what the hell do I know? You know, I'm yeah. a, <laughs> I'm a beginner. You know, so uh, yeah, that's that's kind of scary in, in a way. Yeah, there's. I mean, I don't think there's any way around it. You know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because if you speak up yeah. and, and it turns out you're wrong, right. you know, yep, you could have a credibility done. issue at that point. But <laughs> if you're right and you don't say anything, you know, you, you, bad things could happen. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, it's a tough situation to be in. And, you know, and I feel I now that I know some guys uh, who've gotten out of the military, particularly like you're talking about and going into uh, uh, the airlines, you know, there there's no relationship there. I was surprised to know this. Oh, like no. Guys are showing up and they don't even know who they're flying with till they show up to the aircraft, essentially. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, well, I mean, you'll have I mean, you'll have some guys who fly continuous legs together. Sure. And usually those are, you know, a lot of overseas flights. But, yeah, those guys, they'll meet some of those people maybe maybe will fly once a month or maybe once every two months with the same person. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh yeah, didn't I fly a you know a, a leg to Chicago with you? It's like, yeah, I think so. You know, that's it. Yeah. Right. But that's why there's a lot of rules that we had that the FAA has in place. Um, that, you know, no small chatting talking below ten thousand feet, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. There's a lot of rules um, so they don't, um, you know, get into conversation or, or, you know, get too familiar with each other until it's time. But, yeah. um, yeah, it's a super interesting thing, but you're absolutely right. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. Right. But I, I can tell you if, 
if I have a good sense that my life's in danger, um, I don't, <laughs> I don't care if that's a four star sitting in that left seat. I'm, I'm doing something different, right? But yeah. um, easier said than done. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, we're glad that uh, that turned out as 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 well as it did, you know. Uh, but I appreciate him coming on and, and spending some time with us. And speaking of appreciation, uh, I want to say uh, some thank you to our recent Patreon. So uh, we did set up a Patreon to you know help support the channel and its, its growth and continuation. So we've got some different tiers. And uh, I just want to say thanks to these people and kind of talk about that for a second. So uh, our first tier is the, the crew chief tier. Uh, and that uh, we currently have some guys, uh, Cam Flip and Philip Kuffner are supporting that. And with that tier, they get early access to these episodes. So they get them, uh, you know, three or four days before we put them out on the mainstream. Uh, for our next tier, we've got uh, what we call the mission pilot tier. And we have uh, Jeanette Appleby, uh, Nick Greenaway. Uh, let's see who else. Philip Sobel and Lee. So I appreciate you guys uh, supporting the channel, uh, supporting the show. And uh, they'll get early access as well as access to our uh, special uh, after hours, I guess you could say bonus material. So typically what I do is, uh, with the, whoever I'm interviewing, I, I, you know, finish recording and then I keep recording and say, Hey, you know, tell me a good story. So we'll spend another 20, 30 minutes, uh, having a chat about something that, uh, either happened to them on a deployment or in training or things like that. So, uh, you'll get access to that if, uh, if you're a, a mission pilot or in the higher tier of the flight lead. So we have, uh, two new flight leads. We have Chase and Dami. So I appreciate you guys supporting us as well. And uh, in addition to everything that we just mentioned, uh, what we're looking to do is uh, every month have some sort of online get together with our flight leads and have a little Q&A, BNS section and, uh, you know, just talk about whatever. Uh, still trying to figure out what the best venue and time of that is. So I'm going to send out a message here pretty soon about that and try to get that worked up. But uh, but uh, greatly appreciate those guys supporting us, guys and gals, I should say, supporting us on the channel with uh, Patreon. But you can support us too just by hitting like and subscribing to this and leaving a comment. Those things really help out. It uh, you know, helps out the algorithms and, and all that jazz. So uh, anything that you guys are willing to do to support the show is is greatly appreciated. So, uh, well, am I missing anything? Have we uh, pretty much hit all the nails? Yeah, I think so. It's just, um, you know, this is like, this is a new year and the, you know, 2020 is behind us and, uh, you know, going to this new and, uh, you know, if COVID taught us anything, um, you know, it, 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 you know, it's been horrible to see the suffering that's been going around in 2020 yeah. and it, we're going to probably be going through it for a little bit in 21. But I mean, uh, you know, one thing it's really, I guess, taught me in the, over the past year is like, you know, slow down, you know, I get yeah. to telework from home. I, I work from home then, you know, I've been doing that for a year now. And uh, it's been good. I've been, it's been time with the family. Um, so if there's anything that's good and positive that's come out of this COVID is the understanding of, of uh, people's health and also uh, how important friends and family are. So I hope we carry that into 21. So I'm, I'm super excited about what you're doing and uh, the clan that you're leading and uh, the charge that you're taking. I'm just happy to be a part of it. Yep. And we're happy to have you. And uh, yeah, it's been a, been a big help so far and we've got, Nothing but good stuff ahead of us uh, on the show. So I appreciate your help and appreciate all you guys out there listening. Comments made by the guests and hosts are our own and not representative of the Department of Defense or any private business. Appreciate you listening. Check out our website. Check out our Instagram. And again, hit that subscribe and like as much as you can. We appreciate you listening. We'll talk to you guys later. Take care.